Hello. It is Tuesday, April the 12th, 2022, and the title of this episode of the Paul Truesdale Podcast is called Breadbasket Politics. Ah, yes, episode 274. As always, we have a tough crowd, a very tough crowd. Kill him, do it! Ah, we get no respect. We got Russians in the crowd. Oh, no, not good, not good at all. Well, we've got about 257 days left until Christmas. You got to get out there and buy all that junk, worthless expenditures. You gotta stay enslaved. You gotta buy something for everybody, even if they don't want it. Keep piling on the plastic and the oil because guess what? We gotta keep all them guys employed with FedEx, UPS, Postal Service, Amazon, Uber Eats, and everybody else. So what can we do? It is what it is. What it is. I feel a lot like a fellow by the name of uh, Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, oh. electrocuted, and burned. Just about every one of those things has happened to me. Let's get started. This is the Paul Truesdale Podcast. Due to our extensive holdings, that of our clients and your host, you should assume that we have a position in all companies discussed and that a conflict of interest exists. Yeah! The information presented is provided for informational purposes. And now, Paul Truesdell. Certainly! Well, what do you say we get started? We have the boys with us. We have Roscoe. Yeah! We have Curly Joe. Certainly! We have Tiny Tim. Yes! And we have the Reverend Ralph. Oh! We also have Leon Gasamascus. And from the forest, we have Bubba and Tarzan. But today, the boys are going to have to sit back a little silent. Tarzan, would you shut up? And we're going to enjoy another one of the uh, podcasts that we did earlier. We're going to have two Pauls in a pod. Yes, right. Joining me will be my son, Paul Grant Truesdell II. I'm Paul Grant Truesdell Sr. And so what do you say we get started? We're going to talk a little bit about Russia, Ukraine. We're going to talk about a lot about Africa. We're talking about uh, agriculture. We're going to talk about letters of credit. We're going to talk about money and finance and all sorts of things just to get you thinking, just to get you started, because that's what we do here at our firms. Are you ready to rock and roll? Let's take a few moments and talk a little bit about what is the potential outcome of the Russian invasion of Ukraine when it comes to food. Basic fundamental thing that just about every human being seems to need a little bit of. Yeah, yeah, you definitely need food to, to survive that and water. Two of the most highly fought over commodities in the history of uh, civilization. So Russia has uh, a little bit of wheat. They export wheat, so does uh, Ukraine. Russia exports uh, is about responsible for 18% of the grain that gets out in the world. Same thing with uh, Ukraine that together is about 25%. And uh, as a result of the war, it's going to be a little bit of a um, shortfall. Well, yeah, everything's based on just-in-time manufacturing or delivery or supply. Because of that, uh, large stockpiles of foodstuffs are stored in the countries that seem to grow them. Countries like Ukraine have lots and lots of food. And uh, despite the intentional targeting of food supplies in Ukraine, a lot of it is stored in areas that have been uh, not advantageous for the Russians to attack. So, you know, that, think what you will about about the idea of attacking the food supplies of a giant civilian population. Um, it's not getting shipped. The, the first objectives of the Russian military was to bomb a bunch of bomb the 
Navy of Ukraine, and then they went forward with intimidating and then bombing in some cases uh, ships that were delivering supplies uh, from Russia or Ukrainian manufacturers through the Black Sea. So a lot of the grain's not going to get out by way of rail, not going to get out by truck, got to get out by sea. Yes. And in the case of Lebanon, they, I believe their stockpiles are totally out. And the last shipment that arrived, it arrived late. And due to some issues with the shipping, um, the grain was it was delivered, effectively destroyed. So some countries are already starting to deal with this. I think uh, Egypt is put price fixing or fixed pricing uh, to prevent scalping and other issues um, as Egypt has approximately 60 days or less of uh, grain, primarily wheat, um, left in the country. And their primary supplier is grain. So from a global standpoint, if you think about it, there's going to be a lot of ancillary players in this world war because they're going to want to get food. They're going to get, want to get grain. They're going to, there's going to be some pressure to get things either settled or, or quit. I, mean, I think I can see a lot of um, a lot of posturing going on. At least I was a leader of uh, Egypt. It'd be like, uh, yo, dude, um, either uh, kill all the Russians, get them out, or um, or uh, capitulate. You got to, you know, we got to get back to uh, business. Yeah, the the pressure geopolitically is going to be interesting to see how people settle. Russia does not have the industrial capacity to manufacture much additional food and export much. And one of the issues is, is people are to be on their side and you have a hungry population. What do you have to offer? Um, people are going to probably switch sides pretty easily if populace starts to get restless. And I, I don't, you know, that's just one angle of it. There's a million you could go down, but that's, that's just one very simple one I see in the short term on certain key allies that the Russians have been able to build up over the past couple, a decade or so. What I don't know about Ukraine, and we need to do some research on it, is the degree into which they have family farms versus corporate farms. We're here in the United States, corporate farming has become a, you know, a big thing. Family farms are way down from what they were. Everybody knows that. But you know, when you think about it, when you look at traditional farming in our nation and other places, you made children. You know, mom and dad made children. And the promise was, you know, kids would stay on the land and the land would be theirs and the, and the kids would take care of the, of the, the parents. The, uh, you know, the old wagon, um, wagon train, go west, young man, all that kind of stuff is, is I think, something you have to kind of like. So what is Ukraine like in terms of the United States? What's Ukraine like in terms of Canada? Uh, and then, we, of course, we know that there's going to be a lot of similarities to the Russians, but are there? Now, are, is, is there, you know, what are the farming situations? I, I just think these are fascinating topics because what I think a lot of people in Biden administration has said, get ready for some really ugly inflation numbers. I mean, I went to the grocery store this morning and stocked up on a few things here and spent $494 on what normally would cost us around $150, $170. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, everything's going to get expensive. I mean, uh, grains are inputs to uh, meat, so meat's going to get expensive. Obviously, it already has been getting you know brutally expensive during COVID and all that stuff has come down. The uh, the thing that's, that's interesting across the board is, you know, we got a quick little flash surprise as to what it could be like during COVID. And it will be interesting to see how different, I guess, uh, markets and industries have been able to use this to be able to prepare and how to ration supplies or, or utilize different things in different ways that uh, they may have been more easily caught off guard two years ago. Like, has anybody learned a lesson from this? Have they prepared differently? They allocated at stockpiles of things? I don't know. I, I really don't know. And I what I do know is that take your corporate farms that have to follow um, big government policy, people are not going to show up for work. I mean, we know that's a problem. We've seen that. We talked about that before in prior podcasts when you and I did a couple together and we're going to be doing this on a regular basis going forward. But one of the 
the things I think people need to think about is that sophisticated farming all centers around seeds. Sophisticated farming centers around a lot of technology. Not only do you have robotic tractors that are doing things, you have the leveling of soil. You tend not to have the pooling of water. You have devices that are kind of like your t- turkey uh, um, temperature gauges. You know, when it pops, it's ready. So, you know, oh, okay, over there, we got to put water. Over here, we don't. I mean, there's sophistication, and that doesn't even include the, the uh, fertilizer, but the sophistication when it comes to, to seeds is amazing. I found a statistic that I just was blown away at. In 1928, you had for wheat, an average acre uh, did 20 bushels. And by 2021, it's 200 bushels. And that has to do strictly with technology and seed. It has nothing to do with global warming, global cooling, or global change. It has to do with technology. Um, so what do you think? Do you think the Ukrainians are as sophisticated as we are when it comes to growing? I know that we all suffer from, you know, we're big men on campus and recency and supremacy, but I literally don't know. And I, I think that's something that you and I've got to figure out from an investment standpoint coming up. Yeah, I do not know how, what their efficiency is compared to the West. Um, my assumption, though, is it's pretty high. Uh, based on what I've seen on the ground, it looks like a lot of family farms, probably family farms that are on the fairly large side, just just as a guess. I haven't actually looked at any of that data. I'm sure it's out there. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because the, the thing that, you know, in the past, if you, if you, if you were able to prevent the corporatization of farms and were able to keep that kind of family farm culture alive in your country, which obviously in the U.S. is totally gone from a 90 plus percent agrarian society to a fully industrialized city dwelling society in 40 years. Like it's, it's, that's never coming back. Nope. But in Ukraine and other places in the world where he's, you know, more uh, assuming my assumption is correct, that it's more family farms. Um, the advent of things like drones have made the ability to compete with corporate farms a lot, lot easier, you know, for just a few thousand dollars, which, you know, to most people, I'm sure thinks they see it as a lot of money. But, you know, I see videos of uh, Ukrainian farmers driving half million dollar John Deere tractors around <laughs> and, you know, yeah, that it's just cost of doing business. Um, yeah, I hear the song, uh, oh, yo, ho, it's off to work we go, exactly. take our tractor and tow a tank, hi, ho, hi, ho, hi, ho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but nowadays, I mean, you know, you've got really good drones. I mean, I just off the top of my head, I know of one company, DJI, that has an entire like series of products geared towards agriculture, you know, doing, they've got a whole set of sensors and I'm sure you can get things that are cheaper than these even, but, um, you know, you can fly around your field and you can check in, in an automated fashion too, which is pretty cool. So you can just launch it and this is your grid coordinates and it collects the data and then you can see it on a spreadsheet or map or whatever you want to do. And, you know, you can fly around, you can set your drone to go fly around your fields and go check what's, you know, what, what is, what is the, uh, fertilization rate look like based on, you know, the green and they can test the moisture of the soil and there's a, and they can check for like different um, tests and things. And anyways, they can get a pretty good read as to what's going on because they have some fancy sensor suite that goes along with your regular camera. And, uh, and anyways, so for just a few thousand dollars, I mean, what does that do? That replaces potentially an entire person or multiple job to go out and drive the field and, you know, go and like you say, go sniff the dirt and see what's going on with the actual crops potentially every day. So yeah, the risks like that that are massive force multipliers for small farms. And, you know, you combine that with just basic stuff like video surveillance and things like that. It can potentially, you know, alert you to again pests and uh, the animals and things like that. Get ahead of get ahead of problems like that that can absolutely ravage a crop. Well, the old-fashioned thing, the beetle bugs. I just you know, there's different kinds of insects that, that you know we have. Uh, what's the fly? Uh, whatever they call it here in Florida that goes after oranges. What a 
whatever it is, a fruit yeah. fly, something like that, whatever. It's just, yeah. Here's the thing, though. A lot of people talk about seeds, genetic modified seeds. And we've had these discussions about, oh, my God, how terrible everything is. But you would not get the crop yields if you didn't do that kind of thing. But also remember, as some people, you can't even talk about it. If it's not a generic seed, they're going to they're gonna lose their mind. Others are like, no, you have to. And I think this is going to get kind of interesting. We'll talk about Europe and, and their uh, farm-to-fork policy. But one of the things that I think is important to remember, it wasn't just a few years ago that a bunch of Chinese were arrested in uh, Iowa. Um, oh, yeah. They were uh, stealing um, agricultural secrets. And what I... <sighs> Here's the thing. If Russia, now going back to Russia, if Russia is using seeds from Monsanto and the seeds from Monsanto are curated in such a way that they don't germinate without getting a new crop. So you buy your seeds, you got one crop, you're done. You used to be able, you know, like say for corn, you held some of your corn back because you're going to seed your field next year. I mean, you Absolutely, did that. Yeah. Well, now they've got it set up. Well, guess what? It ain't going to happen. So it's, I find it interesting, you know, are the Russians got any Monsanto seeds? Are they screwed to the pooch? I mean... I have not dug into that, but um, I assume that they have some amount of independence for those sorts of things because food security is a big deal. That's one of the reasons Europe has the non-GMO policies that they do for farming, and it's obviously reduced their ability to grow a tremendous surplus of food. But the key is they actually control their own food security. They don't rely on Monsanto or other uh, global manufacturers to provide them seeds year to year. And his, as far as I'm aware, um, aside from other crazy government policies on paper anyways it should have provided uh, additional a better profit margin for the average farmer since they aren't shelling out you know basically whatever the big manufacturer demands they pay for special seeds basically licensing license seeds and all this other crazy stuff because some of these seeds i mean they have you know fertilizer and they have they have other stuff kind of built into them so they're it's in, it's interesting they they very some there's a difference between i can't remember the guy's name who genetically modified wheat to grow like what 10 or whatever times the output, you know, he's credited as, as, you know, biting the food to populate the third world in the 20th century. He won a Nobel Prize for it. But, Is uh, that Haber Bosch? Maybe. Yeah, Haber Bosch uh, in his nitrogen and natural gas research. Well, that's NPX. <laughs> Uh, or NPK, PK, uh, what do you call it? Um, fertilizer. Um, yeah, the Haber-Bosch process is, is super, super, super important. They invented it in, during World War One, I, I believe. The Germans did. German scientists did, and they figured out how to take natural gas and to pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere. Because the problem is, is nitrogen is a commonly found element on Earth, but it's very difficult to actually get your hands on it. Mm-hmm. So, as a key part of NPK fertilizer, nitrogen, potassium, uh, phosphorus, um, you the, the the hold back there was always nitrogen. How do we how do we get how do we artificially inject nitrogen into the soil? And obviously that's where crop rotations and all that stuff comes from. Is different crops decay at different rates and well the, the process involves natural gas. Yes, so what I'm saying is the the they were able to use natural gas to suck uh, nitrogen out of the atmosphere. That's basically how it works. So for all of those people out there who are absolute brain freaks and you want to have batteries and everything, are you going to plow the fields with battery powered tractors? You can say what you want and then you don't want to get rid of all natural gas, all fossil fuels. What are you going to do for food? And so it's always a conundrum, you know, whose politically correct uh, issue outweighs somebody else. So we'll let people starve. Um, do we feed them? It, and it's, it's a real big deal if you think about it. And again, with, with population growth trends, you see that the production of nitrogen corresponds directly to population. Absolutely. Because you got to do what? Yeah, yeah you got to grow food. But to round back to what I was saying a moment ago, the uh, increasing the, the yield on 
on wheat on wheat crop, you know, for each stock of, of wheat, however, however many bushels of uh, actual wheat yield you get out of the crop, us- usable food product. Um, I think it increased by like what some some tremendous amount just in like a couple years. And but there's a difference between that kind of type of genetically modified, where it's really it's just natural selection, as far as I understand. You're just picking better yields, and then you you grow those, and you're just you're just always you're just picking the best of the best until you get a good example is is modern day we have chickens. Um, for some reason in the United States, you can't use antibiotics and all these steroids and things like chickens, um, at least not like genetically modified anyways. Um, uh, so what they, all these giant super Hulk chickens that you see in some of your stores, you know, you look at these chicken breasts and they look like, you know, they, they would be just these like giants, like uh, literal, like Hulk chickens. That's the only way I can think Schwarzenegger of chickens. Yeah. Uh, Lou Ferrigno chickens walking around. Lou Ferrigno. Hulk. Of course, nobody my age would know that reference, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep moving. Um, the, <laughs> those chickens are actually just natural selection. Just keep breeding the biggest ones with the biggest ones until they have, you know, chickens that can produce, you know, two and three and four pound chicken But breasts. see, that's wrong because all chickens are created the same and all chickens have the same right to be on the uh, table, no. don't they? Nope. Can't have selective breeding. That's that's wrong. The politically correct people of the world will, will going to tear us a new one. Nope. Not at, uh, uh, what is it, Purdue and what's the other one? Tyson. Tyson. Nope. Purdue and Tyson, they do not believe in chicken equality. They only get the biggest, highest yielding uh, beefiest uh, beefcake chickens that you can buy. You're listening to the podcast called the Paul Truesdale Podcast. My name is Paul Truesdale. Joining me is none other than Paul Truesdale, who is my son. We're with Fixed Cost Financial. We're the founder, at least I am, and the chief executive officer of the company. have been doing this for 36 years, and Paul is a chief technology officer. I encourage you to go to fixedcostfinancial.com. That's fixedcostfinancial.com. If you do, you'll see it's investing done better. You'll be glad you did. Let's get back to our silliness in Hulk chickens. Yeah, so you know, Hulk chickens is a good example of how you know uh, selective breeding is is the same thing. And you know, t- t- total tangent, but it just kind of shows you how easy it is. Uh, a guy, uh, you know, it seems like everything we talk about right now is about Russia. Uh, this this goes back. I learned this years and years and years ago, probably eight eight ten years ago. Um, There's a guy in like Siberia or someplace in the 60s or 70s or something. He figured out how to basically create dogs, and he is the first person that I'm aware of in history that domesticated a wild animal. What oh I mean yeah, by yeah, that is yeah. What I mean, and what I mean by that is, yeah, yeah you you think you can domesticate a wolf or, or or a lion or whatever? It's like, yeah, just because you got lucky that it didn't rip your head off doesn't mean it's domesticated. I mean, uh, wild cows to moo moo. I'm gonna provide milk and be absolutely dumb, right? Or horses and obviously dogs, uh, cats, uh, things like that. Domesticated animals are really, really, really unusual. And there's been like there was a huge thing, and I can't remember sometime in the past 200 years. I want to think it was more recent than not, but I don't remember, where somebody tried to domesticate zebras to turn them into like high, basically high-end horses. Totally failed. So there's been a there's been a huge, uh, at least there was in prior century, um, a huge movement to try and figure out how to domesticate wild animals because obviously if you can domesticate them, they're safer to work with, um, factory farm them for different reasons and you know, all that sort of thing. And one of the things that this guy did was, he, he's super famous, I think, he is to me, <laughs> he, he figured out how to turn foxes into something that resembles a dog literally within like 10 years by just doing selective breeding. Uh, so foxes that had a predisposition to being friendly from birth, he would breed. The ones that weren't, he didn't breed. He just kept doing that cycle over and over and over. He had a couple of attributes that he looked for that he, he figured out after trial and error. And then he just kept going with that until it's logical end conclusion. And basically he had things that looked like foxes, but they behaved like dogs. Or, you know, they were attentive to your, your emotions, movements. They were looking you know they were always looking at 
the human trying to figure out well, what's the human doing. They were very friendly from birth, safe around children, uh, other dogs and things like that. So it's interesting because, you know, natural selection can take you a long way, even if it's assisted, right? Like we all know the story about the orange trees and all these different things. They're a huge um, apple trees, obviously. Tangelos, all of it. You know, everything, everything is all about splicing and just keep working. It. Well, apple trees are super famous. I mean, the United States was famous for having hundreds of variants of apples. Every every town and city in the country, not literally, but for all intents and purposes, had a uh, had their own unique brand of apple. And you know, today it's boiled down to like ten variants. You know, for the most part, all you'll see is Honeycrisp and whatever those god awful red hard skinned apples are that preserve yeah. for six months. And uh, <laughs> we have one left. Yes, uh, they last forever. They're like the potatoes of apples, but you know, they're not the most delicious things in the world. Anyways, point is, is that natural selection will take you a long ways. The stuff that we're talking about, the the GMO stuff. Uh, obviously, some people will want to tell you where do you draw the line between GMO what, what's genetically modified versus like natural selection is that genetically modified oh is human involvement involved you know there's all kinds of like arguments stuff that people have about this but I think the thing that you want to really focus on is how if it was you know on a on a biological level was it genetically modified was it, cre- was it a seed effectively created in a lab and in Europe they've effectively banned those and that's that would that was the point you know, so now you kind of have a decent history as to some of this genetically modified stuff and how it went from you know pretty simple stuff to pretty advanced even though it wasn't lab made effectively uh, to now they're taking it to extreme degrees you know they build in effectively uh equivalent of like seed vaccines for against different fungus and uh they do drought resistance you know they they somehow have engineered them so they can survive off of less water if uh, you get a drought in the middle of a crop season so you don't lose while you're trying to provide enough water or move your resources around there's there's a lot of very interesting stuff they've done one of the things that i've always said is that the African continent is just a freaking disaster. And one day it's going to get things, it's got to get squared around or the, the people are going to starve there. I'm going to kind of wrap all these things and tie together real quickly. One of the things with this uh, farm to fork approach in uh, Europe, Europe is poised, uh, to, and it could be because of the war, but it's poised to go from a net exporter of food of all types to a net importer with all the crazy uh, Eurozone rules and regulations. And for example, if you use certain pesticides in some of the very lush fields that exist in South Africa and Zimbabwe and Kenya, I mean, people grow things, folks. It's not all lions and it's not all guys running around in Tarzan suits out there. It's a it's a real place where people do real things and you know, a lot just like us, maybe a little bit different, but a lot like us. So here's the thing. If they use certain pesticides, oh, European Union, no, 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 bring you in. You, you keep that far away. Yeah, Southern Africa in general has some of the highest, some of the largest amounts of arable land in the world. And it's interesting because basically political instability has neutered their ability to thrive in the global agricultural market. China has obviously swept in their Belt and Road Initiative in the past 10 years, provided lots and lots and lots of predatory financing and construction and stuff like that to South Africa and other Southern African uh, countries to basically just steal resources and set up a large corporate Chinese corporate farming operations because China has a lot of arable land themselves and in theory they should be able to grow all the food they would need for all of their people um, especially considering they have some of the best rivers and and uh, you know the 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 high quality arable land with easy access to water
water is is tremendous in vast swaths of China, but compared to other countries, of course. Um, but you know, they have one point whatever billion people, and you know, they have a rising uh, middle class, and they have higher demands, and it's you know, it's a mess because you still have approximately what three percent of the population that's still effectively a peasant class. You have this other portion of the population that has an increasing appetite for more and more Western kind of style lifestyles, which of course means more and more calories and lots of more exotic foods. Um, and they're getting that from South Africa. At least they, they, they're trying to. They're trying to get more and more stuff. They buy tons of stuff from us, buy tons and tons of stuff from uh, Brazil. And uh, so a good example is in the United States, we grow tons and tons of soybeans. People don't understand why, because as far as I know, I have yet to meet more than maybe five people. So a number of people you can count on one hand that have ever said that, oh, I really like soy, soy anything, soy milks, uh, you know, tofu and things like that. It's, you know, other than if you go to an Asian restaurant or go to some like unique non-American cuisine, you're just not going to get it. It's not in the American diet, but we make, I think we produce probably at least top two uh, soybeans in the world, if not number one. And the reason is, is that's what we use to feed cows. We use to grow meat. And that's the same thing the Chinese do. The Chinese buy tons of our soybeans because they also, they make it in the products because that's part of their culture. Um, but the other thing they do is they use it to grow cows, feed cows. And that's a, a fair, it's, it's historically been a fairly cheap source of uh, fattening food for animals. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you, 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 when you start to look at it, you know, there's all these spider webs of global geopolitics that involve food that this crisis kind of throws a giant wrench in the monkey works, as the phrase were. Well, if you're enjoying this uh, podcast, the Paul Truesdale podcast, one of the things that we do at our firm, Fixed Cost Financial, is we go into a deep dive on things. This is just a quick overview of agriculture and how it relates to war, what's going on with uh, GMO uh, seeds and all the things that uh, go into agriculture. People get hungry. And for example, the Arab Spring, uh, a lot of people know about the Arab Spring. They had some upset population and uh, some uh, real nasty things going on. Well, the reality there, a lot of it had to do with food. Got hungry. And there's also a correlation with uh, Russia and Ukraine. 70% of all the locations in the world where there are, quote, starvation or people are going to bed hungry um, have some kind of a conflict. They're right now, between 50 and 60, what you would call mini wars. Nobody's talking about them. Uh, people are dying. People are fighting. Uh, they got guerrilla and outright uh, you know, warfare going on. People always say, well, what's the United States doing here? What's the United States military doing there? There are, there are things all over the green earth. So the, the reality is the cost of food is what it is. I would propose, and I'd like to hear your comments on it. What do you think is going to happen if, if the American consumer, the American voter, actually realizes that the State Department and others are going to be buying up a ton of grain and a ton of food to ship to areas, especially in Africa, uh, but they're not able to feed themselves, and it's going to drive the price of uh, food here on your Publix and uh, Winn-Dixie and Albertsons and all those uh, Walmart shelves. What do you think people are going to say? Well, the first whiff of that is going to, I think, be met with political reality, which is there's a handful of things you can do very quickly. It won't be, uh, it won't make anybody happy, and some people will cry and complain. And it is what it is. But you know, at the end of the day, if people are hungry, that is the largest threat to a government that exists on the planet. Yep, always has, always has been, always will be. The the moment the moment you have an uptick in people who are hungry, that's when civil wars happen. That is what happened in during the color revolution period, during the uh, I can't remember what the what the official name of it is, but anyways, during um, the Obama administration, what was that, 2010, 11, 12, that time period, um, the primary motivator behind those people protesting in the streets, contrary to uh, whatever the media was saying, something about.
about Google interfering with things and then whatever Alex Jones or RT was trying to propagandize you about in the West about how, you know, you've got CIA dark ops, you know, creating like some type of weird Western control over these places. The reality is, is yeah, there may, we're involved in everything. And that's something I think people need to remember is contrary to literal tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy idiots. The United States is the, 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 the leader of the world. Make no bones about it. We are in everything. We don't control everything, but we are involved in everything. So the moment some little upstart group of, you know, dipshits with AKs decide to go to try and take over a government, we know about it and we're going to be trying to figure out, okay, do we just let them do what they want to do? Or how does this affect our interests? Do we arm them? Do we take them all out with a drone strike? Like all, this is just what we do. It's, this is, this well, is the same thing applies to uh, the world currency, the reserve currency. Well, yes. I mean, it, it Britain Woods, uh, a lot of people don't understand what that's all about, but what happened to uh, Muammar Gaddafi? I mean, uh, we tolerated a lot of crap with him for the years and it was kind of quid pro quo. He'd kind of give us some information, things go back and forth, look the other way. But when he started uh, his uh, African uh, gold-based uh, money thing, he, he was done. Again, another thing that's blown out of proportion because Muammar Gaddafi, it's again, I will use profanity to illustrate the purpose. He was a giant pain in the ass to every American leader going back to Ronald Reagan. One minute he'd be your buddy and the next minute he would do something really stupid. And, like Lockerbie? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, all evidence points to him for some reason being behind Lockerbie. Um, obviously then we bombed his palace and stuff as uh, whatever. Um, at some time in the 80s, they decided apparently, you know, American ships were flying over the Mediterranean and his people shot a missile at one of our planes. So we sunk his ship. Um, you know, then I guess as you approach the 2000s, he started to become kind of normal again. Obviously threatened to uh, start a nuclear program. Um, he was hiring, uh, let's say, unscrupulous scientists to try and build him long-range missile systems. He's just doing a lot of stuff that made a lot of people mad. Let's just put it that way. Um, that doesn't mean that he didn't have grand ideas. Because he did. He had a grand idea of re-fertilizing and rehydrating the desert to make his land arable again, to shrink to shrink the desert, literally, um, using basically a desalinization. Um, you know, he, he wasn't an all-around all terrible person, but he was a pain, I mean, when I say that, to his people. You know, Libya had a general, generally speaking, a pretty high standard of living while he was in charge, and obviously it's fallen off a cliff since then. But um, yeah, Sometimes it's better to live with the devil you know than the devil you don't. In the case of uh, Libya, they uh, didn't know what they were going to get. Well, Libya and, became a proxy war, massive proportions between the East and the West. I mean, it still is to this day. And Libya is used as a as a, uh, as a ransom territory by particularly Russia and China. At any moment, they can flood, they can flood um, North Africa with people who want to cross the Mediterranean and flood into Europe. And this is an element of geopolitics that really nobody talks about because you know everybody's wanted to do business with Russia for decades and decades, and it's a, a viewed as a great market. And at the same time, some people are scared of them, and who knows like the level of economic and whatever espionage going on between China and the United States and Russia goes with business leaders and who's being blackmailed and like there's there's a it is very very complicated. But the reality is is that it it, it went from a con an independent country that was a pain in the ass to certain people to a geopolitical chess piece overnight and is nothing more than that just like Iraq is Iraq is a geopolitical chess piece 
it is uh, has ceased to mean really anything as far as uh, geopolitical influence in that area of the world. It's only an, its only influence is the fact that it can be a risk to certain people. Yeah, it, Iraq has become balkanized. We've talked about that. I've said that for years. It's just a word I like to use: the balkanization of the world. Sure. And and one of the other things I want to go back to Ukraine. And you were talking about how like Momar wanted to uh, get the uh, the sand returned to a state in which it was uh, arable. It actually, Absolutely. people don't realize you can do that. You can do it. it. Takes a lot of time, but you can do it. You can do it. And and under that sand is some soil under there. There's, there's a lot of issues that people just don't seem to understand. And, and I understand. I re- understand yeah. people don't understand because who actually digs into this stuff? We do, but I'd- well, you have to rehydrate and remineralize the soil. I mean, the sand is literally just depleted of of, of minerals and resources needed to grow things. That that that's the thing. It's extremely expensive and it is time consuming. But you can do it. You can do it. There's no question about that. But in Ukraine, you need to understand that the soil is very similar to our Great Plains. You have some, and and that is a really important thing. That is a resource and a commodity. Um, yeah, it's very rich soil, combined with the fact that it uh, they get a lot of snow, and because of that, the composition of the soil and everything that's involved there, it gets very marshy. Um, I can't remember the exact name, uh, Rasputitsa or something like that. I, uh, the name for the mucky, muddy, sinkhole kind of soil they get during spring. Basically, you get it from the moment it the moment it stops freezing to uh, sometime basically the beginning of summer effectively the beginning of july generally speaking uh the soil in everywhere north maybe 30 40 miles north of the coast turns into this mushy kind of swampy mess and that's one of the tactical reasons that the russians invading ukraine during this time period the whole world for 150 years will have mocked various people um obviously they last mocked hitler and the nazis but they also uh mocked napoleon i think mm-hmm. most famously as you can't invade us during the spring you know you horse some buggies get all bogged down your trucks and your tanks and all this stuff you get stuck on running the made roads and your sol the somebody didn't consult the farmer's almanac i guess but but i, I to me it just shows hubris it's, it's hubris oh, they, they they thought they were you know scary and they would force everybody into submission by just their lion's roar um but but the point is is that that soil that the composition of that soil with those environmental factors is very very advantageous for growing certain crops which they do and so let's take the uh you know a short distance away you got the russian farmer he's got some pretty good soil same deal same yep. deal but he, he he got no oil for his uh no fuel for his tractor because uh, it's got to be used for war effort and then you've got uh, his uh, family and his children his workers as far as i'm aware fuel in russia has not had any interruptions in supply but then uh he's got the okay so he's you know your, your farmer's doing his thing and how are you going to trade because you don't have any banking how are you going to get things when you don't have transportation it's just yeah if you rely on exports or you rely on uh, farming equipment that was made in japan south korea the united states europe you're you've got issues those are those are those are problems with a longer tail i think than of the current year um but that that will be very much a situation like their airline industry where they can seize and effectively steal airplanes but uh, there's only so much you can do to repair things without you know the actual tool and die and repair parts that you need to act to to properly repair and keep things up to standards. Same thing there. Now, it's not something that's going to have an issue immediately, but the longer tail on that is that in a decade, Russian airlines will have to either be stuff made of entirely Russian parts or Chinese parts and to avoid sanctions. Will they do that? I don't know. Will this last that long? I don't know. The uh, average caloric intake during COVID when people were locked down, I believe went up by 
substantially, didn't it? I actually don't know. I think I, I think it did. So. And I think the average weight of the average American went up pretty substantially as well. Here's a here's a bottom line. We'll wrap this up. There's general inflation. There's industry inflation. When it comes to agricultural inflation, multifaceted. Um, you know, you get civil unrest. And I can tell you, I was really surprised. I was at uh, a thing called Seasons 52 in Tampa, at the corner of uh, Kennedy and uh, West Shore. There a night. A great meal with a nice lady. We had a nice conversation. The place was absolutely jam packed. But I did notice the portions were smaller. I did notice a lot of people were having a, a good time. But I do believe that a lot of what's going on is there's a lot of pent up energy to want to get out and do things. And if you see a doubling of prices, I think you're going to see another whipsaw where people are going to go, yeah, I, I, COVID's over with. I'm done, at least in Florida. But now I can't afford to get out. Or at least it's a real it's a real kick in the butt for a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. Um, what I was to, to round back to what I was going to say earlier about the, the domestic political implications of the food supply. There's a lot of, we actually have a lot of, of leverage and a lot of room to solve issues. Um, one, we export a lot of food that we can just say, no, we're not exporting. Some people will get mad about that. Some people feel sad about some people not being able to get our exports. But the reality is the political consideration, American leadership, regardless of political party affiliation and what crazy things people are saying at an, on any given day, they're not going to allow a situation where people are hungry in this country. That won't happen. No. So if it means that we ship a bunch of USAID overseas to um, some country where we give food aid to or keep food supplies in the United States down at a uh, com- compressed uh, price so that certain people can eat. They don't go out in the streets and start rioting like we all know what they're going to do. Um, the other thing is, is before you even get to that point, there's a lot of stuff that the we have the ability to do is easier. You can say to countries like China, no, we're just not going to export you food. Or if you do, like there's a 50% tariff on exports. Like we can do that. And that would that would make it less uh, advantageous for people to do that unless the, unless they're willing to pay just the amazing premiums, in which case for everybody too. Um, you, know, you know what's amazing? We could do that. And you remember when all the pigs were dying over there, they had a swine flu yeah. and Trump. I, I've never understood how you have, and I'm not, I'm not being political because I, I don't care about that. But I was always amazed at the Republicans who were like, we're not going to subsidize hog farmers for not selling over there. You know. So in other words, you, you want to beat China, but at the same time, you don't want to do the things to beat them. They just had their, it wasn't annihilated and it was more than decimated. They lost a lot of their pork. I mean, it was yes. it, it was bad. So instead of subsidizing our farmers and saying, hey, guess what? We're going to give you subsidies for not selling over there because we're going to kick them in the teeth. Oh no, can't do that. I mean, it's just weird. I can't, I, I, this one thing I don't understand is politics. I don't well, try. I just follow what's going on. Well, this is what I'm talking about, the political considerations. When you actually look at the real situation, there's a lot of Chinese lobbying in the American agricultural industry. People don't actually know about that. A lot of them are Republicans. One of them happened to be named Purdue, and hmm, off the top of my head, if I recall, he was the U.S. head of the USDA, Trump, yeah, or he was the agriculture commissioner under Trump. Anyways, um, you know, literally from the Purdue family that, you know, the farming Purdue that you see on chicken. No, really? And obviously they have massive, massive, massive financial ties to China. Anyways, won't won't go into it, but, you know, it's, 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 again, it's, it's global. Like, there is a lot of influence being peddled around in all directions. Um, and the word for all for everyone to remember is the word corporatocracy. Remember that? Oh yeah. Um, but as far as like levers, stuff like that will cease to mean anything if it means that people are going to riot, right? Th- those type of little considerations like go out the door. And very simple things that can be done are things like, hey, the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture still pays farmers to grow certain crops that are not profitable because oh, they use them in hmm, they use what seventy percent of the corn grown in this country for ethanol. Well, you want to increase the of, of the availability of cow 
calories in the country and especially manufactured calories very quickly. <laughs> we got 70% extra corn. That feeds a lot of people. Yep. Um, obviously. It's just so damn frustrating because I was a kid when this all started happening. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just, but the other thing is, is the USDA is still paying people to grow crops and burn their fields. They're paying people to not grow it in the first place, um, to keep crop prices of certain certain crop categories propped up uh, to keep the markets level or create, you know, do whatever, whatever their, whatever their political reasons are. It's, it's largely political, you know, massive, massive agricultural donor has a lot on the line. So the USDA goes out and spends your tax dollars because of lobbying to certain people to go not to not crop, to not grow crops. There's all kinds of stupid stuff like that go on. So there's a massive amount of extra efficiency and product that you could get out of the ground uh, or out to consumers if they were serious about this, if things actually got to that point. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, the, like I said, the United States still has a lot of leverage if there is a real crisis as far as uh, famine in certain countries. Um, and I think we're ve- actually very likely to see these types of things being leveraged for geopolitical gain. Countries that have been fair weather friends or have we have lost influence in like hey you're starving we're the only ones that have a food surplus because we stopped doing stupid policy x that burned off you know some huge amount of food it's like do you want food okay well you're gonna have to kick the russians out or kick the chinese out or whatever the circumstances so there's all these things to consider um but like i said yeah we we have a lot more leverage than other people like i said at the beginning of this uh, lebanon's up a creek battle as the phrase goes egypt has issues lots of countries in north africa have issues um one country we're not going to let have a revolution is going to be Egypt. Egypt has been a pretty good friend. Yeah, I, Egypt. Late. Egypt is very strategic for a lot of reasons, and they're not just important to us. They're very important to Israel. They're important to many uh, European countries. Um, you know, I, I I don't know the situation is in Libya right now, but you know, it's an absolute nightmare. Multiple governments still warring for control, and it's a it's a mess. But uh, I would expect to see lots of movement in Libya in the coming months as Russia uh, starts to feel the pain, and they start they attempt to unleash uh, 2015 migrants, uh, migrant levels on Europe again. Interesting to see how that fares. Well, some people are saying it's time to just put a boot to their throat and get rid of them. Uh, as far as agriculture goes in, in the U.S., it's a one point nearly $5 trillion annual part of the economy. It's not small. That's very, very big. big. And one of the other things that I think we should just mention and we'll wrap this up, when it comes to the embargoes, you know, people with ships are not taking grain, they're not taking... Yeah, that's a huge one. And, and one of the reasons is it has to do with banking. Yes. So well, it's banking and it's also the security of the actual ship and their crews. Correct. So just real quick, what is it? Uh, MSC, Maersk, and France's uh, CMA, CGM. Um, and then I think there was somebody else on the list. I can't get it out. Um, but anyways, basically the majority of the major uh, contract shipping companies out there uh, that do, did deliveries to and from Russia have stopped doing business. And one of the reasons that nobody's talking about is yeah they can deal with banking stuff i mean they, they literally have a ship so you know as the old uh you know the, the old joke about you know we don't need money or we need digital money because what am i going to do rolls roll a cart of gold out to your ship well they literally can do that like they have ships so you know they can take commodities for, for payment there's they have a lot of flexibility as actual physical shippers where somebody who makes uh, uh trinkets or or whatever don't exactly have that that type of luxury but point is they they've stopped doing business business with Russia because in the beginning in the opening days of the war they shot missiles and sunk a couple or attempted to sink a couple um, I think they sunk I, I think they killed some people on a ship I don't remember the details anyways um, but anyways civilian ships that were one one or two of those major companies 
were just in the Black Sea doing shipping from Ukraine, mainly grain and other things. So they were like, uh, you're shooting and blowing us up? No, we're out. No. And guess what? We're never coming back. So well, and there's the also problem the- is, is those companies comprise like 60, no, 70 something percent of global shipping. So <laughs> Russia's- Consolidation again comes to the rescue. Oh, but so for Russia, like- That's sarcasm. Yes, yes, of course. But for Russia, that's a that's a big problem because now you've got a contract with lower tier people and they're going, it's going to get very expensive. You know, gotta gotta get your uh, gotta get your combat pay for for your shipping company because you might <laughs> a Russian sub might shoot a shoot a torpedo at you. Yeah, yeah, Yemenis uh, and Somali uh, rebels uh, pirates are not exactly a big deal now compared to uh, go sinky sinky from a, a torpedo. Well, that's another phenomenon that people people like to harp on the uh, the very negative things about the United States and our global reach. But nobody seemed to nobody nobody got up and gave us an award and clapped us in the back and and thanked us when we basically waged a war against uh, what East African piracy to protect global trade. Everybody just kind of like, well, thanks for spending hundreds of millions of dollars to protect global trade. Anyways, on, on to the next problem. Yeah, I mean, with the Marine Corps, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, what do you think they were doing back in the day? They were fighting pirates. Of course, we were doing the same thing, which is the reason why we had the War of 1812, the war that we never want to talk about. Eh, well, I think it's funny. Uh, Nobody knows what I just said, I guarantee no, it. of course not. But, but uh, Sorry, folks, just look up the War of 1812 and why did the British uh, invade and burn down the capital? Just just take a look at why they did that. Yeah, look at look at the back and forth. Uh, uh, what is it? What is it like? Uh, mutual piracy that was going on back and forth between the United States and Britain. That was uh, it, it was <laughs> it was a fun game that went on for a while until the British had had enough. Um, but going back to what yeah. I said, you know, you get letters of credit. You got letters. Yeah. In, in, That's important. You, yeah, I mean, so my word is my bond. Uh, the bank uh, bonds it. I mean, you just can't do it, and you can barter just so much. And when you barter, it's more expensive than having something that's uh, liquid and uh, transferable. It's just, it is what it is, what it is. Um, and the other thing is, is, is one of the, one of those guarantors of last resort that a lot of Russian companies tried to use was China. But major Chinese banks are, last I saw, had, were very hesitant to to issue uh, credit and to guarantee those types of uh, financial instruments because they were, they're, they're all afraid of getting sanctions from the United States. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, uh-oh moments for for certain Russian industries that heavily rely on exports. I think we've given our uh, listeners enough of a uh, headache. What do you think we're going to wrap it up? Absolutely. If this doesn't give you enough to think about and do some research on, I don't know what will. And if you want uh, professional research done for you by an organization that's been doing this now for over 36 years, give us a call. Fixed cost financial. You can call us at 212-433-2525. That's 212-433-2525. And you might actually get one of us on the phone at one of the Pauls. And so that's what we do. Or somebody else. We don't know who's going to answer the phone, but somebody will. Don't answer the phone. Leave a message. We'll get back with you. We're always busy. Hey, you know the easy thing to do? Go to fixcostfinancial.com. Use a contact form, schedule a time, and we'll do that. It's always a whole lot easier with that. Thank you very much. Hasta luego, semanana. We're out of here. Who do you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? Me? I'm giving away free money. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one and all, that concludes the Paul Truesdale podcast. A quick little two-minute rendition of Ride of the Valkyries by Wagner, one of my favorites. Two minutes, and then it'll tip out of here, and we're done. Thanks for joining us. 
Tell family, friends, neighbors, relatives, and coworkers. Help us get the word out. We're having a ball. We're out of here. can do without a proctologist with poor depth perception any woman whose hobby is breastfeeding zoo animals a cross-eyed nun with a bullwhip and a bottle of gin a waitress with a visible infection on her serving hand and any man whose arm hair completely covers his wristwatch okay that's enough of that There's a garbage can in the northeast corner. You drop the bags and leave.